0: Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. Hola, buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again this week. This week, we're going to be talking about the cleansing fire of purgatory. Where is that in Scripture? How did that become a part of the Christian tradition? Well, there's a lot of critics of the Catholic Church who will say that's not in Scripture. And that was invented by Pope Gregory the Great or, or some other figure you know, late within uh, maybe the 5th or 6th or 7th century. What we're going to show today is uh, that's not the case. We actually do find it in sacred scripture. and We're going to talk about that here in a minute. But that intro song was Invitation by Jenny Pixler. And you can find a link to her site on my site at www.catholichack.com. Just look for the show notes on The Cleansing Fire of Purgatory. You know, All Souls uh, Day is coming up this week, and um, that's the day where we pray for those who have gone before us and the Lord. And I have a list, and I'm sure you do too. So how about we unite our hearts and our intentions and go before the Lord and pray for them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All praise and glory and honor be to you, Almighty God, as we come again to sit at your feet, to listen to your word, and to seek your truth. We pray that you'll send forth your Holy Spirit to guide us on this journey. We ask you to, to bless those, to purify those who have gone before us in the Lord, as we trust them into your care. You and all, a loving and merciful God, we trust them into your care. I pray specifically for the repose of the soul of John Medeiros, Kelly Verena, Marissa Sanchez, Mary Lou Brown for all the babies who are lost to abortion and contraception, for all those who have suffered violence and whose lives have been cut short, taken before their time, before they've had the opportunity to repent, to convert. I pray for the sick and the infirmed, for the conversion of sinners, and for all those in purgatory as they long to see your holy face forever and ever and ever. I ask Our Lady to intercede for these intentions and for all of those listening. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, purgatory, you know, so where is that in the Bible anyway? where does it say in sacred scripture that there is just there's more than heaven or hell I mean isn't there only just two states that a, a soul could experience after death heaven and hell where is that third state even talked about I mean where is the word purgatory found in scripture you ready for it well honestly the word purgatory, exist nowhere in Scripture. You can't turn to any passage in the sacred Scriptures and find the word purgatory. Does that cause scandal for you? Are you somehow scandalized because that's true? Well, you you shouldn't be, because nowhere do we find in sacred Scripture the word trinity. Yet we believe, as Christians, that God is a trinity of persons. There is only one God, but that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, if Trinity is not found, the word itself not found in Scripture, but we know that Scripture does teach the Trinity, and therefore, maybe the same is true for Purgatory. Maybe the word Purgatory isn't found, but maybe we can find the concept of Purgatory taught in Scripture. You know, Purgatory, there might be some other names that we could apply to it. How about Hades, which we do find in Sacred Scripture? Or how about Sheol? The the Hebrew version of it, that's also found in sacred scripture. So we have to think beyond mere titles, mere words that we, we attribute to certain concepts. And again, where does it say in sacred scripture that it must be written in sacred scripture explicitly for it to be believed? The answer is nowhere. Nowhere in sacred scripture does it say it must be written in sacred scripture in order for it to be believed by the faithful. So, but it does exist purgatory in scripture, and I want to get into that. Second Thessalonians 2.13 says, quote, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Sanctification, saved through sanctification. We must be sanctified. Sounds like a process, this sanctification that's being referred to here in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you catch that? Without which strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So if I believe in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which I sincerely do, by the way, and I sincerely accept him into my heart every single day, and I sincerely surrender myself to him every single day, yet if I do not strive for holiness, as sacred scripture says, then I cannot see the Lord. That's a process that I am being sanctified daily, striving for holiness daily, that I might therefore see the Lord. Why is this necessary? Why is this important? Well, the book of Revelation chapter 21 verse 27 says, quote, nothing unclean shall enter it, nor anyone who practices admonition or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That it that it's referring to there in that uh, verse 27 of chapter 21 of the book of Revelation refers to heaven, talking about how heaven comes down out of, out, you know, it, it, this, the new city of the new Jerusalem is being lowered from heaven. This is heaven. You can't enter the heavenly city. You can't enter it unless you're clean because nothing unclean will enter it. Why? Well, let's think about it. Let's be Let's be very practical for a moment. God is all holiness. He is perfection. He is an infinite concept of perfection. We can't even fathom it. Nothing. He can't be, you know, he can't be even related to to impurity. It's impossible. He is all holiness. He is all love. He is all uh, purity. So if we are dirt and we, we commingle with perfection. We don't just get uh, we don't just get covered up. It's not just hidden. You know, Christ's uh, death on the cross doesn't just cover our sins somehow, hide them under like a the perfect, beautiful white uh, sheep's wool. But that dirt still exists underneath. No, we have to be cleansed, purified. Made to be actually clean, not just symbolically clean, but actually clean, so that we can co mingle with God for all eternity, which is our heavenly destiny. So that's very critical that we understand that nothing unclean can enter it. Well, golly, Jew is Joe. I mean, really, I mean, honestly, we're, none of us are perfect. I mean, is this possible? Is heaven even possible then? If we have to be purified? Well, of course it is. It is so by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is by his death and resurrection that makes it possible that we can be cleaned and purified. Let's see what the Catechism of the, the Catholic Church says on this regard. In paragraph 1030, quote, All who die in God's grace and friendship... But still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Did you see that? You see, often some critics think that the church's teaching on purgatory is that purgatory is somehow a uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card, a second chance at trying to earn heaven. The Catholics don't teach that you can earn heaven, by the way. You can't Earn heaven? That's impossible. We are saved by the grace of God, working itself out in love, as Saint Paul says that we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, that we serve our Lord out of a joyful heart. But we do so because we are a part of the family of God, and family members work for the family. Okay. So, as the Catechism says, that those who have have uh, have died and who are destined for heaven, they have to be purified. They have to go through a sanctification, a process by which they are cleansed so that they can enter it, enter into heaven, the joy of heaven, as it says. In paragraph 1031, it goes on to say, the church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the church, by reference to certain texts of scripture, speaks of a cleansing fire. It quotes uh, from St. Gregory the Great, As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence, we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but certain others in the age to come. Now, if you're going to be forgiven from things in the age to come, well, if you're in hell... You can't be. It's too late. It's final. It's eternal. If you're in heaven, you need no forgiveness because you already are. You're with God for all all eternity. So that must suggest there is a third state right there. That's paragraph 1030 and 1031 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Now, prayers for the dead which is wrapped up in this idea of purgatory, as as we do on All Souls Day, we pray for those who have gone before us. This is not new. This wasn't new to to the apostles, to the day of Jesus. This was something that predated Christ. And we can read about it in 2 Maccabees 12, verses 39-45. through It says, On the next day, as by that time it had become necessary, Judas and his men went to take up the bodies of the fallen and to bring them back to lie with their kinsmen in the sepulchres of their fathers. Then, under the tunic of every one of the dead, they found sacred tokens of the idols of Jamnia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear. And it became clear to all that this was why these men had fallen. So they all blessed, so they all blessed the ways of the Lord, the righteous judge, who reveals all things that are hidden. And they turned to prayer, beseeching that the sin which had been committed might be wholly blotted out. And the noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened because of the sin of those who had fallen. He also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of two thousand, thousand drachmas of silver and sent it to jerusalem to provide for a sin offering in doing this he acted very well and honorably taking account of their resurrection taking account of the resurrection for if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead but if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. Unquote. Again, that's Second Maccabees chapter 12 verses 39 through45. Now, during the Protestant Revolt, Martin Luther rejected the doctrine of prayers for the dead. He rejected purgatory. You see, Martin Luther had a real problem with his own sin nature. We, we read about Martin Luther that he was perpetually in the confessional. He struggled with the fact that he was tempted, that he had you know, temptations, and that he sinned and fell short. And so ultimately, he developed the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Well, that doesn't quite fit scripture and it doesn't fit tradition and and so Martin Luther rejects that purgatory exists, that you are purified of your of your earthly attachments, you're detached from them, you're purified before you enter into the full beatific vision. And he rejected the fact that the the people of God even before the Christians came on the scene, the Jews, they practiced this teaching of praying for the dead. And so he rejected all of that and therefore he tossed out 2 Maccabees as a result. He tossed it out of scripture. He on his own said, oh, this is not inspired. And what he did to, in order to do that is he he said, well, the Palestinian canon of scripture doesn't include these books and so therefore they're not inspired. But The problem with that is those had been accepted inspired books for 15 centuries before he said that the other problem is jesus and the apostles quote from these scriptures in the new testament and sort of the early church fathers this is established scripture that martin luther rejected because he didn't like it do we reject things because we don't like them we do it all the time is it right no we should not rationalize our behavior and what do we see We see 500 years of disobedience in the Protestant revolt as a result to that choice of Martin Luther and others like him. Now, let me ask you a question, reflecting on 2 Maccabees. As he took up an offering, made a sin offering, he asked them to refrain from sinning, that they should pray for the dead, that they might rejoice in the resurrection. That was 2 Maccabees. Now, if you're in heaven again, you don't need prayer. Why? Because you're already in the beatific vision. If you're in hell, prayer will do you no good. It's already final. You've closed the door to hell on yourself. So this must mean there is a third state, a state which the Jews called Sheol. Now, Sheol had uh, varying concepts depending on the text that you would refer to, but basically there are, there's a part of Sheol which is more pleasurable and there's a part of Sheol which is more painful. And so there was this idea, sort of like uh, the rich man in Lazarus. And the rich man, he was sort of in pain and anguish. And the Lazarus, that poor man who begged uh, the rich man for food, he was in the bosom of Abraham, his father, sort of in the paradise, is what they called it, in paradise, which is what our Lord talks about on the cross. That this day shall be with me in paradise. But that day, as first Peter tells us, our Lord went into Sheol to rescue the captives there that were being held because the gates of heaven had not yet been opened. It would be opened when our Lord was raised from the dead and he would ascend into heaven, bringing the captives with him. Now, the Orthodox Jews today still recite the mourner's kaddish. They do so for 11 months after their loved ones have passed on. They're praying for the dead, even today. This tradition predates Christianity. But somehow we we want to uh, listen to our critics and let them tell us that this was somehow invented in the 4th, 5th, or 6th centuries. But nothing could be further from the truth. It is established here, even before the time of Christ. Now, my favorite New Testament passage describing purgatory is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 17. It says, quote, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and another man is building upon it. Let each man take care how he builds upon it for no other foundation can any one lay than that which is laid which is jesus christ now if any one builds on the foundation with gold silver precious stones wood hay straw each man's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that temple you are, unquote. This is temple imagery. St. Paul is using the temple in Jerusalem as the metaphor by which to teach us the doctrine of purgatory. Now, in the temple, now you can Google images of the temple, and you can read articles about from the Jewish Encyclopedia about how that temple was built. You can actually read, uh, uh, about this in in second kings and elsewhere actually i think it's first kings when when uh, solomon built the temple okay there's was a, an outer court and that court had an altar and that altar had a fire where they burned wood and straw the stubble they would stoke the fire where they would offer the sacrifice the burnt offerings that's where you would start okay as the priest you would start out there, and then you'd make your way into, the, into the, uh, the, the temple building inside the first room. There, you would encounter silver and precious stones, ornate and beautiful precious metals. There you would begin to offer, say, the incense offering, and there the, the table of the, the bread of presence would be laid out. And then you would go a little further inside the temple into the Holy of Holies. Where that room was a perfect cube, as Revelation 21 also describes, the perfect cube, the holy of holies, the heart of God, that is where God's presence was in the Shekinah glory cloud, there on the seat, the mercy seat, the throne of God, which is the Ark of the Covenant. That room was laden in pure gold. So you start on the outside of the temple in wood and straw and and stubble. Being burned up through fire, and you'd make your way into the temple, and you start to encounter more precious metals. And then finally you would enter the heart of it all: God's presence, the Holy of Holies, and it's nothing but pure gold. You see the progression, the sanctification exists there, that progression, starting from the less valuable, making it way your way up to the most valuable. This is St. Paul's imagery for purification. And notice he says in verse 15, If any any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We are going to suffer fire. It's going to happen. You will encounter the fire of God's love. And some of your work will be burned up you will suffer loss now the good news is as the catechism of the catholic church says quoting also and referencing this particular verse that you might suffer loss but you might be you will also be saved purgatory does not change the destination it is a purification. Think of uh, a TV show you might have seen where, let's say, they're, you got people in these big chemical warfare suits, right? And they're dealing with some nasty chemical or something. And, and before they're able to get out of that chemical, they have to be showered off and cleansed off. Then they can break free from it. Think of that suit and that nasty chemical as our daily life and our nastiness of sin. Before we can break out of that suit and, and get free from it, we have to be purified. We have to be cleansed before we can enter into it. That's purgatory. Now, how long is that? How long does that take? An eternity? No. Maybe it takes a an instant. But what is an instant to God? For God does not know time. To God... All moments of time are present to him simultaneously, which is why the cross is present at every mass, everywhere on earth, on every altar, because heaven and earth collide, Hebrews 12, they become one, and it becomes Calvary. We are truly present at the foot of the cross at Calvary, at mass. It is the one sacrifice. We don't re-crucify sacrifice, uh, Christ. It is the one cro- cross of Christ. We sit at the foot and we offer that sacrifice up for our sins at every Mass. It's all wrapped up. It's all part of it. And it's beautiful in my eyes. So we are purified through fire. First 1 Peter 1, 1.7 says, quote, "...so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which through, though perishable, is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But but this means suffering, Joe. I mean, doesn't the gospel tell us that we are not going to suffer anymore? That everything is going to be peachy kink, all roses? It's all upside now? It's all easy street? Accepting Christ means accepting his cross. And suffering is as a part of our faith as happiness. Now, God does not promise happiness in this life. That is promised in eternity with Him. In this life, Jesus warned us in Matthew 5 that they would revile and hate us, that they would persecute us, that we must endure it to the end. Romans 5 verses 1 through 5 says, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Notice, it is through the suffering of Christ on the cross that we have gained access to this grace, that we now have access to be sanctified and purified because of the cross of Christ. Colossians 1:24 says, quote, "Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church." Jesus' death on the cross is not somehow less important because of the church's teaching on purgatory. It's because of his death on the cross that we teach it. If we want to make it to heaven, we must die on the cross along with our Lord. St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 24 and 25 say, Then Jesus told his disciples, If any man would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, make amends now with one another. Or suffer the consequences. Our Lord told his disciples that if they did not make amends with each other and with all uh, else, that they would be tossed into prison. St. Luke chapter 12 verse Fifty-nine. He says, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. We will pay a price. We will suffer. But we will be saved. That's the doctrine of purgatory. That's the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. To be sanctified. To be forgiven. As our Lord says, forgive us our as he told us to pray. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Brothers in Christ, let's make amends. Let's forgive and let's be sanctified and purified and work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Pray for all those who have gone before you. Pray for them. As I pray for you, you pray for me. From the Catholic Underground.